Well, good morning, Door Creek. It is good to be together on this rainy summer day. And if you're a guest here, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors, part of the teaching team. And you've joined us in our summer series, Big Mistake, with the emphasis on lesson learned, right? Lesson learned. So I'm going to tell you about my friend, B. Gordon. B. Gordon was this just sweet, kind, I would describe her as frail and sickly, friend that we had back in Wheaton. If you met her, you'd never know that she was this very competitive athlete. In fact, she was Indiana University's very first women's head coach for basketball. You can see her here in the picture as she's inducted in the IU Hall of Fame back in 2014. She has still today the winningest percentage of a head women's basketball coach at IU. She took her team to the final four, super, super successful. On one occasion, she took one of her teams over to China for a competition and a tournament. And on the way home at the the airport in China, she just grabbed an apple at one of the little kiosks there and was eating it on the plane on the way home. Uh, On that 14 hour flight, she grew sicker and sicker And by the time she got back to Chicago, she was rushed to intensive care where she spent the next 14 days of her life. Her immune system was completely decimated. And from that day forward, B. Gorton has never been the same. An apple, some bad fruit, who would have thunk? Reminds me though of our big mistake and the story of our very first parents who similarly got into some serious bad fruit and they and we with them and the world that we live in has never been the same. So our big mistake is found in Genesis chapter three. So Genesis is the first book, so about page three, you should catch up with chapter three. Genesis chapter three. Now, here, here's the, uh, the challenge today. I, I want you to find the big mistake, but I'm just going to warn you right now, it's not what you think it is. All right? So that's, that's your cue. All right, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, And pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Did you see it? Did you get it? Well, we'll see. We'll see. Let's go over the facts and start with the four main characters. So... Right away, we're presented with Adam and Eve. Back in chapter one, we understand unique in all of God's creation, God created Adam and Eve, male and female, in his image. 
They represent God. They are commanded to fill the earth with image bearers. They're commanded to be stewards under God of this beautiful world that he placed them in. And so they were blessed and called to be fruitful, called to care and rule and take over God's beautiful creation under him. Then there's the serpent. The serpent may present in chapter 3 like some kind of mythological character, but pay attention to verse 1, which makes it clear that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He was created. He's not given a name here. We know him later in Scripture as one called Satan, which means the adversary or the devil. He's the anti-God, if you will. He's a fallen angel, a cherubim, a certain class of angels. And his job was to protect the holiness of God. And Ezekiel 7 and Isaiah 14 allude to the fact that he was jealous of God's glory and wanted for himself and led a rebellion in heaven against God. And so he's this Satan, this fallen angel, if you will. And angels in the Bible can appear as people, and in this case, appear as the serpent. In the Bible, Satan's described as a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. Jesus says he's like a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. Jesus also calls him a liar, John 8.44, and the father of all lies, the serpent. And then we have God who's the creator of all things, the main character, not only of Genesis, Genesis 3, but of the whole Bible. He is presented early on as the God who speaks, and his word is powerful, right? So he speaks the whole world into existence out of nothing. He speaks to his creation, and he calls it very good. And he's given Adam and Eve everything good to enjoy, All of his creation is good, very good. At the center of the garden is the tree of life. That as they did life under God's rule, trusting him, they would flourish. They would experience eternal joy and peace and happiness and flourishing. But this good God is also a wise God who is the only one at this point who defines what is good and what is not good. And there's one thing in the garden that he says is not good. And it has to do with the tree in the middle of the garden as well. We read this command in Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Eden means delightful. To work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God gave Adam that clear command. We know it in chapter 2, 15 through 17. We also know that Eve knew that command because she says in verse 3 of chapter 3, but God did say, and then she quotes the command, actually adding a little to it when she said, and we can't touch it either. God never said anything about touching it. Just don't eat it. So how does it happen? Adam and Eve living in this paradise, this perfect place in a world, if you will, full of yeses. Like everything they saw and enjoyed in the garden was a yes. Yes, enjoy that. Yes, it is yours. Yes, this is your job and place in this world. There is only one no. 
one prohibition. So how in the world, with all these yeses, do they break the one prohibition? Well, there's a couple things we know. First is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented a choice. Our first parents were created with a chip that predisposed them every time to always trust God, to be good and to define what is good and not good. They actually had a a choice to, to take God at his word or to come to another conclusion, if you will, to wear the crown and decide for themselves how they ought to rule their lives and this world and determine what is good for them and what is not good. So there's a choice. But we also understand with that choice, it wasn't just a level playing field. It wasn't just a hermetically sealed place where there's no evil. Actually, Satan slips into the garden, if you will, and he tempts them. And he's more crafty than all the other animals, and he's mixing and twisting God's word to an extent that, number one, he gets them to doubt God's goodness. It's one of the fundamental beginning places where we go wrong and give in to temptation. How could God be good if he's holding back this which is good for you? I'm telling you, it's good for you. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. They already were created in the image of God. Not only did he twist God's care to getting them to doubt his goodness, then he starts questioning God's word. Did God really say Then he flat out contradicts it. You will not die. And before you know it, doubting God's goodness, they disobey his clear command. They reject his rule and they lose all that was perfect between them and God, between them and each other as husband and wife, between them and the world God called them to take care of. The, The joy of bringing children into this world would be marked with pain. The, the, the joy of working God's creation would be marked with sweat and thistles and thorns and hard ground. So I'm wondering at this point if you got your, your eye on the big mistake. I'm pretty sure you don't. So let me help you. All right. So let's go to Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15, to see what the Bible says about what happened in the garden. Remember, I always say this. The Bible doesn't need to be interpreted. The Bible is an interpretation. So we already know what's going on here because the Bible's commenting on it. Listen how it describes what happened in Romans chapter 5. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Ha! Is that what you were thinking? Because we're playing the tape. Now, just... I know you've got the same tape that I've got. And when the film is rolling, who grabbed the apple, class? All right. Who took the first bite? I thought that's what we thought. Okay. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. In other words, something happened before that. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a man... Not through a woman, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in, not Eve all die, but as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So what's the deal with Eve? Well, we move on. Next verse. 
2 Corinthians 11, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived, okay, so she, all right, she was deceived. By the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So she was deceived. So the question then is, so is she off the hook because she was tricked? And Adam wasn't tricked. No, 1 Timothy 2.14. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So she's a sinner, but she's not the first sinner. And we're going... (laughs) (laughs) So you ready? You ready for the big mistake? Here it is. It's a big surprise. Adam hit the mute button. The first sin is not what was done. It was what was left undone. It's what should have happened. Instead, he hit the mute button. Instead of protecting his wife, reminding her of God's good word, and all the yeses in the world that they enjoyed, saving her and the world from death. He hit the mute button. Here it is again, verse six. Here's the surprise. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who just woke up from a nap. No, it doesn't say that. She gave some to her husband who was out chopping wood for the barbecue that night. No, it doesn't say that. Who was what? With her. You miss it, don't you? You just read through it and you go, I I didn't see that. It's the first sit where nothing happened. And that's the point. He was called to care for God's creation, to protect and help it flourish, to bring God's blessing and spread his image throughout this beautiful created world that he was charged to take care of under God. And he hit the mute button. In this moment of temptation, he had an opportunity to protect his wife and to speak God's truth into the situation so that death didn't mark her life. And his passivity only led to worse things where she actually does eat and he follows in kind. So a psychologist would tell us he's the first enabler. Right there. What do we know about enablers? They avoid conflict to keep the peace. We don't know anything about that. Maybe. Enablers are in denial about the seriousness of their loved one's actions. For sure was in denial. Enablers bottle their emotions. We don't know from the text. Enablers think the problem will improve given time. Maybe he did. Enablers endure think that this is just a season. I don't know if that was the issue, but I can tell you this is true about Adam. Enablers can join in on the problem activity even though they know it's harmful. That probably happened. So let, let's, let's dig into this thing. Let's do an autopsy. Let's do an anatomy lesson here on passivity so we understand the, the different dimensions of passivity and what it could look like in our life because we want to learn this lesson. So let me give you a couple examples of other cases in the Bible where we see the sin of passivity. So a few pages to the right in Genesis Chapter 12, we meet a guy named Abram who's promised by God to be the father of a nation. The only problem is he's an old man, 75, his wife is 65, and they don't have any children. Big problem. But you're going to have children that outnumber the stars of the heaven, the sands of the seashore. He's all excited to bring God's blessing to all the families of the earth, right? And so what happens is nothing. 
<laughs> Sarah is not getting pregnant. And so there's a point where Sarah comes to Abram and says, I've got an idea. Why don't you take my servant, Hagar, and we'll just treat her like as a surrogate, and she'll bear your child, the child of the promise. And so what does Abraham do? He tells his wife, honey, that can't be true, because I asked him about my servant, Eliezer, this good guy, and I said, Lord, I don't have an heir, but why can't this good man, Eliezer, be adopted and become our heir? And God said no to Eliezer, so Sarah, I am sure it's not your servant, Hagar. No, that's not what he said. He said, whatever you say, dear. And he sleeps with Hagar and talk about a mess. Aaron. Moses up on the mountain for 40 days, right? On Mount Sinai. The people of Israel are freaked out. There's thunder and lightning. They don't want anybody to be talking to God. So they were happy to send Moses up there after 40 days. They're sure he's dead. There's no way this guy is coming back. He met the holy almighty God and he is, he's just out cold. And so they say to Aaron, Aaron, you, you, gotta, you gotta make a God that represents the God who led us out of Israel. And he hit the mute button, hit the mute button. He actually knew that first command. You shall have no other God. The second, you shall not make for... God in a graven image, but he hits the mute button. He puts it in neutral, pause, and he, you know, as he says, well, yeah, I just took their jewelry, threw it in the fire, <laughs> out jumped a golden calf. How about this one, Solomon? Had a problem with women. We understand from last week's message on David and Bathsheba that maybe he learned that at his father's feet with his eight wives, but he took it to another degree, 300 concubines, 700 wives, are you kidding me? A lot of these wives were foreign women and they brought with them this foreign worship, a lot of this sex religion. And he hit the mute button. This one who was the wisest man in his day, this one who prayed for wisdom and God honored him and gave him wisdom and so much more hit the mute button. It's all over the place, Old Testament, New Testament, and our grandparents in our lives. So, Passivity is hitting the mute button. It's another kind of version of what sometimes is called the bystander effect, where we see something that needs to be done, someone is in harm's way, and everybody walks by. They don't do anything. And the mute button here is on God's word, not on human opinion. And bringing God's truth to bear in a situation that will spare myself or someone else or a group of people great harm. In Genesis 3, the context is temptation. Now, the caveat here is you can actually share the truth in love and it may not be received. I mean, there was no better person to share that truth graciously than God the Father. And the case is, and his kids rejected it. And so, when we're prone to beat ourselves up sometimes, when we see our kids making bad decisions, remember Remember, even God's first kids blew it. And every generation stands before God, choosing to either trust him or go their own way. So there's examples from Jesus' life and, and how to learn this lesson, because this lesson is all about Jesus, who uh, John 1.14 says was full of grace and truth, and he was one who always spoke 
the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. And when we see Jesus' life, we see his refusal, rejection at every point in all different kinds of applications of being passive. So when tempted in the wilderness, he was never passive. But man, he took a hold of God's word and fought off and resisted temptation, always hanging on to God's truth, right? When Peter said, hearing about Jesus, talking about his upcoming suffering and how he'll die a, a vicious death in Jerusalem, he says, may it never be, Jesus. And remember what he did? He, he didn't say, oh, Peter, there you go again. Hmm, there's Peter again. <laughs> he turned to him and he said, get behind me, Satan. You, you, don't, you don't know what I'm about. I came to go to the cross. He didn't hit the mute button. He didn't hit the mute button, obviously, when he cleared the temple out of the religious greed and hypocrisy that was going on in the temple. He didn't hit the mute button with Judas, who Jesus knew was going to betray him. He said it at dinner. What if he's going to do it? And when he meets him and Judas gives him a kiss, he didn't say, really? Really? You're going to betray me with a kiss? No. Remember what he called him? It's good to remember this. Friend. He didn't hit the mute button. He didn't hit the mute button when the pious religious leaders grabbed this woman who barely could raise her head, caught in adultery. And he called out their hypocrisy and said, look, whoever has not sinned, you cast the first stone. And one by one, they dropped their stones and walked away. And he said to the woman, where are your accusers? They were obviously gone. He said, go and sin no more. He didn't hit the mute button. To the thief on the cross, who moments before may have been spitting at him, for sure was mocking him and, and berailing him, who then cries out, Lord, remember me. And Jesus didn't say, too late, buddy. You should have figured that out 10 minutes ago before you started cursing me. He said, this day, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. It was not passive about his mercy, even to the thief on the cross. His teaching spoke against passivity like this wonderful passage. And it's a startling passage, Matthew 25, talking about the judgment at the end of the day. And he says this, they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, there it is, the sin of omission, for one of the least of these you did not do for me, they'll go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So let's bring it home and start with some implications. Number one, passivity has a boatload, a ton, a mountain of unintended consequences. In our minds, rationally, we're, we're going, man, if I don't do anything, how can this be a big deal if I don't do anything? He didn't do anything. And it just, it's just this domino. It, you know, so she eats the apple. He eats the apple. The two in chapter 2, verse 25, that were naked and not ashamed, are all of a sudden, they know good. 
from evil. And they understand that evil actually now resides in their own being. And so they're ashamed and they blame each other and, and they're covering their shame. And then they're hiding from God. And then before you know it, they're evicted from God's presence and death has entered the equation. The consequences are huge. And we got to catch up with that. Our passivity. Passivity may make us think that, well, I'm not responsible because I didn't do anything. And in not doing the right thing, we are responsible. James 4, 17 speaks precisely to this. So James is Jesus' brother. Here's what he says in his letter. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, you get a pass. Oh, no. It's a sin. It's a sin. It's the sin of omission. So when we were reading through it, we were all clued in to who committed, who committed, what, what did they commit? And we missed the who didn't do what they were supposed to do. And that was Adam. So if the issue is bringing God's truth to bear in temptation in someone's life that is headed to harm's way that God has placed in our life, then the implication is the more I know of God's word, the more I know of the Bible, the more that I'm filled with Christ's spirit who's always working in tandem with the word, the better position I am actually to be an extension of God's mercy and grace wrapped in humility. So I want to apply this for all of us and then specifically to husbands. So buckle up, guys. First of all, for all of us. So we've got to resist the tendency to hit the mute button. We've, we've got to resist the temptation to think that somehow we, our lives aren't connected. That, that's, that was Cain. What, am I my brother's keeper? And, and the obvious answer in, in the text and in scripture is, yeah, you're your brother's keeper. We belong together. We're family together under God. We got to resist the temptation to be party to any kind of bystander effect where we just kind of, we don't, we don't do the good that we ought to do with our family and friends at church, at school, at work, in our community. Now, having said that, let me give some qualifications. First, the first qualification is this. It's not about our opinions. Specifically here, passivity is about the truth of God's word coming to bear in a person's life. So it's the objective truth of God's word. I think we've got to be really careful when we use phrases like this. Well, I, you know, I feel like God said to me, well, man, when you lay the God card down, there's like nobody can say anything. And I'm not saying God can't lead you, but he leads us clearly and unequivocally through his objective, spirit-inspired word. So it's not about my, my opinion, all right? Second, the word in Ephesians 4.15 is speak the truth in love. Ah, oh, what a great instruction. Don't write it. Speak it. Or you can wrap humility in that conversation. 
and where your face and your words and your tone and your posture can convey that you care for this person and that you don't think you're better than this person. Have you ever tried to write something out in a case like this? Anyone ever do that? How'd it go? It don't go well. Like nine times out of 10, probably 99 times out of 100, probably even higher than that. They don't go well because it's so easy to misconstrue what is written on a page. I don't care how long you took in writing it. I don't care on how many water stains there are from the tears in your eyes. Most of the time, they don't go well. Speak the truth in love. Pray about that. There's a timely time and place to do that. So I love the Proverbs 25, 11. A word aptly spoken, so well-timed word, is like apples of gold and trays of silver. It's beautiful. It's appropriate. There's the right time. So question, who is there in our lives right now? A child, a sibling, a close friend, who's heading down a dangerous path? Will we share the truth in love filled with grace? Where are we guilty of passivity in our own life to temptation? What about passivity just like in our community, in our nation, in our world, where there are injustices, but they seemingly don't seem to be maybe having that big of an effect in our life, and so we just hit the mute button. Guys, let me talk to you. Husbands and wannabe husbands. If there was a picture of chapter three, and the picture shows Eve in conversation with the serpent, taking the apple, and Adam kind of doing this little sheepish thing. Here's how I think we could title it. Stop standing there and do something. Stop standing there and do something. Now here's what I don't want you to do because there's gonna actually be a couple knucklehead guys that hear me talking today and think I just gave you a license to be active in a way that is anything but Christ-like. And so you just can, can, can continue to be controlling and demeaning and domineering and just abusive and all these things, but you wrap it up and I am refusing to be passive. Don't go there. The opposite of passivity is not harsh domineering leadership. It's the leadership of Christ who gave up his life for his bride. That's you and me, the church. So men, we need to understand that we live in the shadow of Adam, that, that his DNA is in us and we have to fight against this. The goofy thing is we don't think we have a problem with this. You know why? Because we're killing it at, at the workplace. We, we have all kinds of energy. We have all kinds of passion. And we've got lots of different successes that back that up. And we're working all kinds of hours. And so for us to ever think that there's a passive bone in our body is a complete insult. Not me. Failing to understand we could be completely engaged and actively involved at work 
and completely disengaged at home. Men, stop standing there when your sons and your daughters crave your attention. Men, stop standing there when your wife is looking for your loving leadership. We got to be actively engaged in this every day of our lives. Webster says this about passivity, the different words to describe it, inactive, taking no part, acted upon without acting in return. We've got to reject it at every place. And here's the saying that was at one point attributed to Edmund Burke. We're not really sure if it's him, but anyways, it's as close as we're going to get. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So let me remind you guys about the history of World War II, specifically Pearl Harbor and how we got into World War II. Do you know that three days before December 7th, 1941, our president, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, received a 26-page memo that made it crystal clear that the United States should be on high alert in places like the Hawaiian Islands from an attack by Japan. On the morning of December 7th, there was this new trainee in the area of radar technology, George Elliott, who was there on the island of Oahu when he looks down at his radar and he sees the biggest blip he's ever seen on a radar. And he gets his buddy to look at it and his buddy basically says, dude, it's time for breakfast. We're done with our 24-hour shift. Let's go. He says, no way. I'm calling the superiors. So he calls into the fort, whatever its name was, I forget. And they're all off to breakfast. So 20 minutes later, they call back and they're talking about what was seen on the radar. And, and the higher ups go, well, we think there's a group of bombers coming in from Frisco and that's probably just the bombers. And within minutes, the attack was on. 2,400 soldiers died that day. We declared war at two fronts in Europe against Germany and Japan in the Pacific Rim. And through those wars, over 400,000 soldiers died. This is huge. You know what? One of the great privileges of being a pastor is you stand around gravesides and you hear families talk about their dads. Have you ever thought about that, men? What do you want them to say? I tell you what, if we are living, hitting the passive button all the time, the mute button all the time, keeping it in neutral all the time, it ain't gonna happen, the things that we long for. What do we want our wife and kids to say, our grandkids to say? All the things that we long for are connected to being actively engaged in their lives. So I talked to a group of women this week. I said, so I'm talking about passivity, Adam's sin, and what do you hope I'd say? So man, I got some interesting response from the women. So guys, I thought this was really helpful. So a friend shared, women are looking for an active partner in parenting, someone who backs them up with parenting decisions, doesn't retreat when things get messy, helps create a united front. Women are looking for an active partner in decision-making, being willing to sit down and discuss pros and cons, being an active listener, oops, and participant in conversations, including finances. 
What are women looking for? Husbands to be active participants in and present in family life. For many guys, it's their default to retreat to sports or the garage or their phones when they feel overwhelmed and tired or just checking out. So men, the biblical question about our leadership comes from Ephesians 5. Are we loving our wives as Christ loved the church? And here's what I can tell you after 37, almost 38 years of marriage. Apart from God's grace in my life, the filling of the Holy Spirit, it ain't happening. As much as I wanted to, I'm not loving my wife like Christ loved the church, who gave himself up, who died for us. Man, we'll do the, the dying for our wives. This is the kind of stuff, you know, that makes the 10 o'clock news. But all the little things where we give up our interests and our desires for them, that, that's a whole other story. And the question for wives is, is my response to my husband's leadership actually helping him be actively engaged? Or is my persona and is my response to his leadership actually pushing him into passivity's corner? So one of the women said this. I thought it was really interesting. She said, women, get rid of the concept that our way is the only way. In many ways, as wives and moms, we can create passive incompetency when we criticize our husbands for not doing it our way. And I can think of my friend Jim. Great guy, super successful business owner, great wife, beautiful family. But man, he could do no right when it came to being a dad at home. And you know what he ended up doing? He came home and he figured out he was gonna do life in the basement. And it wasn't a cool man cave. It wasn't even remodeled. It was a pathetic place, an unfinished basement with a crummy looking lounge chair and a TV tray and a bad TV set and maybe some old workout equipment. And that's where he retreated every day when he came home. Is that sad? So the cure here is not to try harder. This is for all of us. But to lean on Jesus, to be filled with his spirit, to have his truth and his grace coursing our minds and hearts. This can't be an option. And actually, it begins with ourself. There, there, we have to lead ourselves. Philippians 2, 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Train yourself to be godly, Paul says to Timothy. We gotta lead ourselves. Where is there passivity in our own lives? And remember this, at the end of the day, the curse and death and shame and blame and hostility is not the last word of Genesis 3. The last word of Genesis 3 is grace and mercy when God calls them all back together after they have disobeyed and rejected his rule, he starts with the serpent and he subjects him to a humble state the rest of his life. You're gonna be living in humility and you're gonna have hostility, your minions against Eve and her descendants. And one of Eve's male descendants is gonna crush your head. 
a final victory. And in that battle, you will bruise his heel. He will be a wounded victor. And so in the middle of this mess, in the middle of all that started from Adam hitting the mute button, God wasn't handcuffed. It's the first promise of the gospel in the middle of that. And so we hang on to hope that Jesus came to forgive us of our passivity, our sins of commission and omission, that Jesus desires a relationship and with that, his spirit, so that we can be actively engaged in a relationship with him and with others that actually brings his blessing. That we can be part of seeing his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. And so, Father God, we pray that you'd forgive our passivity. We pray that you'd help us see it because the truth is we couldn't see it in the text. It's hard for us to see it in our own lives. Help us to think through the important relationships that you've blessed us with in our families, in our friendships, in our neighborhoods, on the dorm floor, the apartment, at work, Lord, we just confess the things that lead to passivity, our own laziness or busyness or fatigue or fear of rejection or not believing that actually you want us to lead or just kind of slumping into this entertainment mindset. Help us to believe with all of our heart that even though in Adam all die, in Christ, trusting in you, Lord Jesus, who never, ever went passive, we're made alive. So make us alive with you, for you, to be people who actually are positioned, Lord, to hear grace, truth, and love come together and rescue them, rescue ourselves. Help us to better know how to talk to ourselves when we're tempted, Lord. So grateful that you are with us, that you never leave us or forsake us, and that the God who is with us, that Lord Jesus, you are for us. That is our hope. In Christ's name we pray. God's people said.